Welcome to What Makes Up Your Mind, updates from the frontiers of neuroscience, well-being, and mental health from the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine. This is your invitation to meet the faculty dedicated to understanding our most complex organ, committed to curing mental illness, and inspired to help create a healthier, thriving world. Welcome back to What Makes Up Your Mind. I'm Jane McMillan. Our topic this time is food and mood. Most of us think of what we eat in terms of whether it's good for our weight or our heart or glucose levels or some other body-specific condition. But what we eat also has a direct influence on our brains, that miraculous organ that's responsible for almost everything about us telling our heart to beat, our lungs to breathe, processing our thoughts, holding our memories, and producing our moods. So how exciting is it to learn that not only can we affect the health of the physical structure and function of our brains, but our emotional health as well, all with what we eat. After all, as Hippocrates said, let food be thy medicine, thy medicine shall be thy food. Now, rest easy. This podcast is not going to be a litany of things you have to give up. Not at all. With the help of our guest, Dr. Miriam Mikowski, we're going to learn to maneuver through times of stress, prepare for a difficult task, and ease some effects of depression and anxiety all by adding foods to our diet. Dr. Mikowski is a clinical assistant professor in the Stanford University Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. She's got particular expertise in nutrition and well-being for body and mind, with plenty of experience in helping high performers maintain wellness as the Associate Director of Scholarship and Health Promotion of the Stanford Medicine WellMD and WellPhD Center. So we begin by saying welcome and thank you, Dr. Maria Mikowski, for joining us on What Makes Up Your Mind. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here, and I look forward to our conversation. Well, let's jump in. I would love to hear how you think of food. How should we think of food as just sustenance, as form of pleasure, as medicine? How, how do you see food with your background? That's a great question. Actually, I don't think anyone has ever asked me that question. Um, I think of it as something something fun, something that nourishes me, something that gives me energy, something that allows me to be better at everything I do from like my energy levels, the way I communicate with people, the way I learn, the way I do my work, um, how tired or not tired I am, the way I connect with other people over food, going for even tea or coffee, um, drinks you know you can just like in any shape or form it's uh it's fun it's um uplifting also like when we are not doing well it can also be you know meal times can be also stressful at, at times too but for the most part it's just such a huge part of life do you stop and think before you have something um how is this going to make me feel later I used to. So, you know, I wasn't always nutritionist and it, it takes it takes time. So uh, in general, I think over one of the reasons perhaps I got interested in nutrition, I've always been very sensitive to the effects of, uh, of food. Um, 
on myself. So like, you know, if I had something too sugary, I would, I would feel it. I would feel different. I didn't particularly like, like that. Or, um, you know, with like, if I had too much salt, I didn't feel good the next day. So, um, sometimes this happens to people as they get older, but for me, that has always been the case. Um, even as a child, I, I felt it. So let's say I go to a, to a restaurant and, um, I love, you know, chocolate and there's a chocolate dessert on the menu and I would really really like to have it but depending on how kind of I feel some days I decide to have it and some days I'm like you know I just have a little bit and maybe share it with my um, uh, husband or if I'm with a friend or or take it home or not order it at all so I yes I would say that in general I, I do think about it a lot and I had an exam I was um, doing a board exam and yes, I, to the dot, I was, I was look, looking at like my nutrition, you know, um, like how much water I was having, electrolytes, timing of my food intake, pro, making sure I had protein, make sure I had like the, the you know, kind of enough fat, also had enough glucose. So I really um, engineered my diet that day. And my test was from one to five p.m. It was a four hour test. And Usually I feel kind of a bit slower in the afternoon. Well, one, it was the test. So I was, you know, <laughs> you, you kind of are alert and scared. Uh, but I also um, didn't get tired. Uh, like mentally and cognitively, I was pretty, pretty sharp. So I, I do play around with my diet, depending on how I want to feel uh, and what I want to do. That makes a lot of sense. I think most of us think about... Unless we're athletes and, and we have a performance of some kind to plan for, um, I think most of us think about food as, oh, I should or I shouldn't, health-wise, weight-wise, something like that. But how should we view food for our mental health? How does that physiologically work? How does food turn into mood and emotion? I really like the way you, you put it for, for sports nutrition and for, for athletes, because that's like a perfect example of a quick and um, um, short-term effect of food on, on our bodies. Like athletes, especially like elite athletes, they really know how the way they eat, timing of their food, more importantly, even composition of their meals can really make or break their performance. But that's for everyone, except that when we are consistently eating diets that are not nourishing, we call them nutrient dense, so they don't have enough nutrients for the amount of calories they provide. So one example would be, you know, broccoli or watercress or spinach or arugula. So green leaf, in general, dark green vegetables are very high in helpful nutrients. They don't have much calories. And then there are also things like donuts for example that they have a lot of calories but not enough nutrients and then if you continuously do one or another we kind of realize you need to have some, some sort of contrast to see like how you feel but if you're consistently eating well or you're consistently eating poorly you you don't experience the extremes and sometimes it's kind of good to it just for the for the sake of experimentation just to kind of change the diet to something drastically different than what we normally have to just see how we feel uh, mentally and and physiologically, and sometimes that can take about a week for it to show, just as a fun experiment. There are many different ways that nutrition can affect our our brains. 
our brain is the most metabolically active organ in our in our body. So even though it weighs very little, it uses uh, proportionate to the rest of our body. It uses about 20 to 25 percent of our daily caloric requirement to to function. So with that, that means that it needs a lot of nutrients. It needs good blood flow, which also means like you know getting oxygen to the brain. And about um, 70, 75 percent of brain's weight is water. Hydration super important. About 60 percent of its dry weight. Is, is fat, so healthy fats are very important for brain structure and function. Then there is protein also in brain structure. There is brain structure, getting nutrients in and out of the brain and waste products out of the brain. Then there is neurotransmitters that really affect brain function. There are multiple hormones that are involved in brain function and also in regulating our mood and overall sense of well-being. And all of these require hundreds of different nutrients that are involved. So our brain is actually very sensitive to what we eat from protein, fat, alcohol, carbohydrates to little micronutrients like zinc or even antioxidants. Inflammation is being associated with depression, for example. So if we have a diet that is high in fruits and vegetables and therefore in antioxidants, then in some studies it's been shown that it can reduce the risk of having depression or depressive symptoms. And then there are clinical trials that show that basically a Mediterranean-type diet can in fact reduce the um, depressive symptoms. So we're talking about that connection between mind and body. You know, as you said, the brain's an organ. We know how nutrients build and feed our organs and bones. And But the mood part of it, the connection there is the hormones, the serotonin, the uh, dopamine. That, that's where that connection physiologically happens, turning our nutrients into a healthful brain as an organ, then into our moods. Do I have that right? Yes. Um, and again, there would be things like inflammation, because inflammation can also affect brain directly and the way we metabolize neurotransmitters and also hormones. So like you mentioned, for example, serotonin and, and dopamine, um, you know, there are different pathways that when we see food or we taste food or after we metabolize food, the levels of serotonin or melatonin or dopamine, uh, epinephrine and norepinephrine can also change based in terms of the substrate that's available. So for example, we know hormones and neurotransmitters are directly made of, of protein molecules. So one, one important factor is making sure that we are getting enough protein. But then we also know that, for example, the ratio of protein to fat to carbohydrate also matter to the brain. The timing of the day also matters. Um, so then it becomes like a very intricate balance of when to do what. And we can kind of paint this perfect diet. But when it actually comes to working with people, a lot of it is just having time to eat, choosing your foods compared to, um, you know, foods that are not as nourishing or being mindful of how much uh, if we are snacking and what we are snacking on. So sometimes we're kind of trying to think of, of it as a very complex thing, but when it comes to like day-to-day -day behaviors, 
I think it's a lot more simple than that. There are like little things that people can do to improve things without having to worry about like, did I have 47 grams of fat today versus like, you know, 61 grams of protein and maybe I should have 75 grams of protein. I think that becomes when, you know, like we're talking about elite athletes for someone who is doing something that's mentally very taxing. And I work with those clients as well. So it really depends on where each one of us is on the spectrum of of our behaviors, knowledge, and what we really want. We're going to ask you about some of those specific things that that we can all do, but I kind of wanted to stick for a minute with this idea of food connection with emotion and mood, because there's the physiological part of it. But then uh, as humans, we're also emotionally connected to food. We we Mm -hmm. use it, food and drink is comfort. Uh, We use it as celebration. There are memories associated with yeah. with food and, it, and it's kind of a way to keep tradition. But then there's the resulting mood from the actual physiological ingestion and breakdown of it. So you must find that fascinating to work with that kind of mind-body thing just in the realm of food and mood. You're absolutely right. And that's why um, I was suggesting that it's not always helpful for for our moods to start paying attention to such details about like the how exactly the meal should look like because then it takes the joy out of it so i mentioned i did that for the day i had my test because it was important on that particular day how my brain works but if i had to do that every day oh that would be a tough life (laughs) that would be so hard it would not be fun at all so going back to your point about traditions and memories and special occasions, for example, you see that with people who have restrictive food intake behaviors, one of the first things that happens is like they are not able to socialize as they used to prior to being on a diet. That's one of the biggest stressors. Going out to restaurants becomes difficult. Going to family dinners becomes difficult. Or people who have, like, for example, food allergies, any other type of restrictions, the first thing that kind of really happens is like it affects the way that we interact with the world or with each other. Thankfully, with more awareness about different conditions and different dietary restrictions, either for health, for religious reasons or other reasons, preferences like being vegan or vegetarian, you know, 60, 70 years ago, that would have been almost unacceptable or weird or awkward. Um, Now we are thankfully living in a society that, uh, that allows people to have more flexibility in the way they eat. There's also traditional diet. So there is a school of thought that believes that we are better off eating the same ways that our grandparents and ancestors used to eat. So for example, someone who is from Asian background, they might benefit from having a diet that is similar to Asian diet, meaning mostly plant-based compared to a Western type American diet. Whereas someone who might be Dutch, they may not necessarily benefit from cutting out, for example, calcium or dairy from the diet entirely because over generations, they have had such a high dairy diet that the way that the absorption of calcium works, for example, is like they might have higher calcium intake, whereas Asians, for example, might be more efficient in absorbing calcium from plant-based diets. 
So there are also these gene-nutrient interactions over time, depending on the environment and also like people's past history. So it goes back to, to your question of like, yes, in some instances, uh, actually the tradition, the tradition is important, like the ways that foods were eaten. Sometimes there's a good reason for it actually being the way it is. A good, yeah, physiological, genetic reason. And would that translate through to better mental health, that genetic ancestral connection for choices in a diet? It would, because again, over time, we might have been evolved in certain parts of the world to be more efficient in absorbing the nutrients that are important for brain, um, like iron, zinc, magnesium, B12, vitamin D, B6, folate, all these nutrients, depending on a person's genetic makeup and also their diet, the requirements of a person can be very different. And also they can absorb, for example, um, iron from animal-based sources better than plant-based sources. So again, knowing, uh, you know, what, what is the predisposition, like genetic predisposition to having nutrient deficiencies is important and to actually take action and do something about it. If it's a dietary modification, I will go with the iron example. In premenopausal women, having a low iron level can mimic symptoms of anxiety like heart palpitation, difficulty breathing, numbness in enhanced fingers, same thing for vitamin B12. Or for example, if people are exposed to a lot of stress, the urinary magnesium excretion would be higher. So people would be excreting magnesium more than when they are not stressed and then making sure that they have you know, adequate magnesium intake would be important. Same thing with omega-3 fatty acids. There are some studies that show that if people are going through a difficult time, making sure that they are getting enough essential fatty acids for the brain can physiologically make them more resilient in dealing with stress. With that, I also want to point out that during the times that we are going either through physiological, like something that's kind of physically stressful for us, so be that like surgery, recovering from injury, not being able to sleep enough, um, not having enough time to, to eat, or mentally stressful situations, then nutrition becomes even more important because our body is working harder to maintain function. You bring up difficult situations. That drives a lot of us to self-medicate with food and with drink. So let's talk about those three things that are kind of seductive and insidious, uh, if not taken in healthfully. So when we self-medicate, especially mentally self-medicate with sugar, alcohol, high saturated fatty foods, it may feel good at the moment, but what, what really happens? Great question. I want to really emphasize that this is not a lack of willpower in any shape or form. There are direct effects on brain that changes the way it functions. We are more um, likely to engage in rewarding behaviors or feel good behaviors compared to when we don't have that stressor. And then there are also direct impacts on, on hormones, in particular um, uh, hunger and satiety hormones that changes the way that we eat. 
or in fact, sometimes the way stress works is like we may not even feel hungry, but like you said, we want to eat. Another interesting thing is there are studies that show that people who are more likely to have self-control tend to actually suffer more from this. So if you expose them to uh, foods that are, let's say, highly palatable and then an healthy option, they look at the healthy option and then some little voice in their brain or actually their brain tells them, well, we considered that. They call it vicarious goal fulfillment. I considered eating the apple, check. And then the brain's like, okay, I've done my job. Now you can do, go do whatever you want to do. And then they end up actually purchasing, buying or eating the highly palatable food. That, that also happens to a lot of people who have very stressful jobs during the day. So the acute effects of stress on our appetite, it suppresses the appetite for majority of people. Then they come home or they finish work if they're working from home. And that stressor is, is gone, at least temporarily, when, when they finish or wrap up their work. And then all of a sudden, this hungry monster <laughs> wakes up inside of them. And because they have been starving, their body has been deprived of nutrients throughout the day. Then it's almost like no amount of food can make them satisfied. So they end up really overeating, let's say between 5, 6, 7 p.m. until the time they go to bed. There is also another thing that there are studies that show that when people eat high sugar, high fat, high sodium foods, high saturated fat, they feel better on that day, but then two days later, they actually feel worse. There's also another interesting thing is like as people gain weight, um, their sense of taste and smell becomes less sharp. So you probably, you know, have met people who are like, even since childhood, like they're very, they're very skinny, they're very thin, and they're all very picky eaters. And there is something to that. So like in, in general, as people lose weight, they taste more, they smell more. So then in, in some ways, it becomes a, a vicious cycle. As people gain more weight, they taste less, they smell less. Therefore, they need to have more, in some ways, like processed foods, you know, with added flavors or textures um, to make it more pleasurable. And then they gain more weight. And then it kind of keeps getting worse and worse. As they start losing weight, that comes back. The sense of taste comes back. So there are people who say, oh, my gosh, I can't. This is so sweet. I, I, I can't have this anymore. Or like, I can't have pizza anymore. It doesn't taste good to me. That brings up the emotional and the, the mood um, connection with food for people who have issues with smell and taste. And with COVID, we're seeing more and more of that now. That is indeed, it, it, yes. I have worked with clients who have experienced that because of COVID. And it is difficult and also heartbreaking to watch. And the consequences of that, you know, grocery shopping becomes more difficult because some smells can be offensive. Cooking, you know, if you can't smell the good food, it's just like a lot of people lose weight. But because of COVID, there are also a lot of studies that are being done with retraining the sensory system to relearn how to smell and taste. Sometimes that works. Then there is also working with temperatures, for example, cold versus warm, textures, crunchy, soft, to other senses to, to make up for the loss. What about the emotional loss, though, that's connected with that? Yes, that is definitely uh, one of the 
biggest challenge is the sense of isolation, but also hopelessness, sadness, loss, grief. It is it is a very challenging experience to to go through. But again, I also want to be hopeful that there are the other strategies to cope and at least reduce the the impact as much as possible instead of resign and give up. You've been so generous with your time, but let's talk quickly about some of the specifics. If we know that we might gravitate towards something sugary or an alcoholic beverage, if we're feeling down, instead of that, what, what are the foods that would boost our mood? Well, if we take one step back, just having some basic knowledge of what emotion or what it is that we are feeling. I think a lot of times when I see emotional eating or wanting to feel better is trying to either avoid a specific emotion or not being aware of feeling a certain emotion. As I mentioned, someone who's very stressed and they come home and they they overeat, maybe if they just pause for 15 minutes to say like, how am I doing? How am I feeling? What is it that I really need? What will be helpful to me right now? And just acknowledging what we are experiencing first and being in touch with our emotions. So and different people do it different ways. You know, for some people, it can be a mindfulness practice where someone else could be, you know, uh, cognitive behavior therapy exercises that they might have learned. Uh, for someone else, it, it could be um, just like a, you know, self-reflection practice self-compassion is another fantastic one to kind of that puts people in touch with themselves, prayer, you know, anything that can kind of provides a little bit of a grounding and, and sometimes food may not be what we want or need. And some other times it might be. So then in those instances, if you want to be more mentally sharp and we need to kind of be really alert, um, then we want to have in terms of ratio, you want to have the same amount, like same volume of protein to carbohydrates. So you ideally want to go for whole grains, things like brown rice, corn, or starchy vegetables like green peas, sweet potatoes, uh, winter squashes, pumpkin, quinoa, and then you want to have tofu, tempeh, or cheese, um, Greek yogurt, fish, you know, lean, red meat, or, or chicken, for example. Volume-wise, we want it to be about the same. And then ideally, we also want to have half of our plate full of vegetables and include a dark green vegetable in there. Then if we want to do something that we are dreading to do, and you absolutely can't uh, engage in that task, then you want to have something that got more carbohydrates. Because it's been shown that when people have higher blood glucose, they're more likely to endure something that they don't want to do. Uh, or engage in an activity that they don't necessarily like to do. So with that, we can think of fruits. You know, it can be an orange or apple or bananas or something like um, a nutrition bar that has got nuts and dried fruits in it. And hydration is very important. And we want to have about one cup of fluid per hour for feeling refreshed and also mentally sharper and less tired. If we're struggling with our mood, with depression or anxiety, could be situational, it could be something that we have as a regular challenge. What are foods that would actually help our brains with those hormones? So overall, a diet that is high in 
fruits and vegetables have been shown to be helpful. There is also um, a couple of, there was one study that showed that if people added one fruit and one vegetable to their baseline diet after two weeks, they kind of felt that they had more energy. And there is something about fruits and vegetables because they're also beautiful and colorful. Make sure that the food that you're eating is beautiful. That element of self-respect, self-care, I want to be kind to myself. Um, a lot of times, I think the challenge with in depression in particular is that people don't have the desire to eat or cook, especially during pandemic that people are not eating out as much. It's like everyone is so tired of, of cooking. But in terms of what people can do, it's a very similar message to heart health um, and, and diabetes as well. It's a diet that is, has got a lot of fruits and vegetables, low in saturated fat, low in added sugar. Um, as you mentioned, alcohol is also another, another factor that can impact mental health. You asked me a challenging question because the answer requires personalization and keeping food preferences in mind. If it is possible to work with a nutrition coach or a dietitian, it will be ideal in an ideal world in every clinic that we have psychologists and we have psychiatrists who would also have nutritionists that can work with people on one-on-one -on -one basis to help them decide what works with them. You know, it's not only the matter of genetics or food preferences. There is budget, income. A lot of people don't know how to use healthy ingredients and make them taste good. So cooking classes or cooking shows or watching YouTube videos that are, that are free. And a lot of it goes back to knowledge of food and how to choose things that are healthy for us and also how to, to prepare them. But if there is one message that you want to walk out of here, if you can add one fruit and one vegetable to whatever you're having today and in the days to come, that's one big step that you can take for yourself. Thank you, Dr. Maryam Mikowski, for sharing your expertise in nutrition and well-being for both body and mind. Dr. Mikowski is a clinical assistant professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Stanford and serves as the associate director of scholarship and health promotion of the Stanford Medicine WellMD and WellPhD Center. We have links to her work in our program notes. We hope that now you're hungry for more delicious brain food and that you'll join us again for What Makes Up Your Mind. I'm Jane McMillan. You've been listening to What Makes Up Your Mind. Updates from the frontiers of neuroscience, well-being, and mental health from the experts in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine. For more information on this program and all of our transformational work, visit us at med.stanford.edu slash psychiatry. What Makes Up Your Mind? Updates from the frontiers of neuroscience, well-being, and mental health is a production of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine, a copyright of the Board of Trustees of Stanford University.